so today we are continuing our, our series in consumer Christianity. This is 1 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 8 today. So pull out your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, the title of today's talk is Freedom to Love. Now, not in the sense of like the 1970s where they're like, free love, man. That's not what it's about. Um, this is a different kind of top uh, title, and we'll explain what this means as we go. And uh, But so far in 1 Corinthians, Paul has answered many questions that were posed by the church in Corinth. And these are questions that centered on things like sexuality or lawsuits among believers or marriage issues or singleness. But in chapter 8, Paul answers a great question that I'm sure that many of you have today. I know that you've argued about this question with your parents. Are you ready? Is it okay for Christians to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols? No? You've not argued about this question? You've not begged your parents to let you eat food that's been sacrificed to idols? I mean, come on, please. All my friends are doing it. You've not had that conversation with your, with your parents? No? I'm off base on this? Now, um, this is a passage that might seem irrelevant. When you start to dig a little bit deeper, it becomes highly relevant to our lives. So here's some background for what the issue that Paul's addressing here. In Corinth, they had these pagan temples, and they would sacrifice these animals to their gods. And a family would bring an animal to a pagan priest. They would slaughter it, and some of the parts were burned on the altar, and some were given to the priest, and the rest was given back to the family that brought it. So back then, meat was a rare delicacy. I mean, you guys, we eat meat almost every single day for most of us. But back then, it was a rare delicacy, and it was almost always associated with idolatry in that culture. Now, I know that we can't really relate to eating meat sacrificed to idols, but we can agree that eating meat cooked over a fire is always a religious experience, right? It always is. It's, it's really good, right, when you cook meat over a fire? Well, back then, it was always part of idol worship in Corinth. So um, with that meat, the worshiper would often throw a banquet, a big party. This might be at their home or even at the pagan temple. And new Christians in Corinth were getting invitations to these meals, you know, come eat with us, come celebrate with us. And this creates a social dilemma for these new Christians in the city of Corinth. Now, in addition, if there was leftover meat from these parties, sometimes they would sell it in the marketplace, and a Christian could unknowingly purchase meat that had been offered to an idol. So was this right or wrong to purchase that kind of meat? Or was it best to never ask the question, don't ask, don't tell policy? And as you can see, this led to more division because one group said, you know, now that you're a Christian, you must avoid these dinner parties altogether. You, certain, you, you should not purchase meat in the meat market. You should only buy Christian meat from the Christian butcher at the Lifeway Christian meat store, right? That was the conservative party. Then you had, like, the liberal party that was, like, saying, you know, now that you're a Christian, you're free in Christ to do whatever you want. doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Enjoy your freedom. You're free in Christ to enjoy whatever is put in front of you. So which party is the correct party? This was a really big social dilemma back then. So if the first party was right, 
that would be the, the conservative party, then the new Christians in Corinth would have to cut the, themselves off from all social life in Corinth. So even though the topic seems irrelevant to us, the bigger question I think this passage addresses is how should Christians handle gray issues in our world today? So we're going to look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. You know, some hear this idea of great issues, and they think, you know, I didn't know there were such a thing as a great issue in the Christian faith. I thought everything was clear, clear cut, black and white, right or wrong. And many things are that way. So murder is one of those things. If you didn't know, now you know. Uh, lying, stealing, coveting, sex outside of marriage. But other things aren't as clear cut as those things. And so we're going to look at some principles we can apply to many situations we might face today. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, where it says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So throughout the book, we talked about this last week, how um, if you don't understand quotation marks and how they're used, you're going to get confused. So whenever we see quotes like this, these are not Paul's words, but he's quoting their words back to them. So when they say that all of us possess knowledge, that was a statement that they were saying to Paul and to others. They were saying, you know, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols is no big deal because we know that idols don't represent any real God. You know, meat is just meat. How can it be tainted if the temple and the idols don't point to any true, real God? That was their take on this. Now, um, there's, you're going to see in this passage, there's the strong people and there's the weaker people. So the strong people are the ones that would say, you know, we know better. We know that these idols don't really point to any real God, so meat is just meat, so you can partake because this doesn't really point to any true God anyway. So it doesn't really matter what you do. That was the strong party. The weaker person, we're going to unpack what the weaker kind of person, what that person is like as we go through the passage. So those understanding this reality of knowledge, they were imposing that knowledge on other people, the weaker brothers and sisters, who may have recently come to faith. I think sometimes we can be correct in our knowledge, but destructive in how we use it. You might say it like this, knowledge divorced from love becomes a weapon to tear, down, to tear down rather than a tool to build up. So I think of uh, many years ago, my kids are older now, but back when they were little, um, we know that every kid, almost all kids, are scared of the dark, right? When they're really little. Who was not scared of the dark? Raise your hand. Anybody? Okay. They might be sociopaths. We don't know. But... Um, but some people, most people, are scared of the dark when they're little, right? Now, as a parent, whenever my kids would ask questions like, they don't do this now. Now they want it as dark as possible in their room when they sleep. But when they were little, they wanted, like, some kind of extra light on. Why? Because there's this little thought of maybe, just maybe, there's a monster in that closet or there's a monster under the bed, right? They have that thought sometimes. And listen, I was a good dad. I would just tell them things like, there probably is a monster in your closet. I mean, they got to conquer their fears, right? I mean, you got to let, let them face their fears. No, I didn't do that. But, um, but listen, if, if, if I were to go to my kids when they're in this place of fear, 
and, and say something like, listen, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. There's no monster in your closet. Like, open the closet and talk to them in a demeaning way and say, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. There's no such thing as monsters. Um, how could you be so dumb to think something like that? If I said those kind of things, they might start getting more scared of me than what might be in their closet, right? But if there's another way to handle that same knowledge, it's, it's the correct information that those things don't really exist, but I'm doing it in an unloving way. But if I were to say to them, hey, listen, when I was your age, I struggled in the same ways. In fact, sometimes I still sleep with a nightlight on, right? And, and I empathize with them and I relate to them and say, listen, I've been there. I know what you're talking about. I've had that same kind of fear. I'm fearful of other, other kinds of things today as an, as an adult. And it's the same information I'm giving them, but I'm now doing it in a loving way with this person. So you can see how when you divorce knowledge from love, it becomes a weapon to tear down rather than a tool to build up. And so we can be right in our knowledge, but wrong in how we use it. And whenever we use knowledge this way, it can make us arrogant, prideful people. And the way Paul describes it here is he says, knowledge puffs up which is a, a, a really good image of someone being full of hot air. There's no substance to that person. It's just they want to brag, they want to boast in their knowledge. And Paul says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So if our knowledge is governed by love, we're going to use it to be constructive. So true knowledge should lead to humility and not pride. So here's the question for us to wrestle with. Does our knowledge, have an, does, does our knowledge always have an edge to it? Whenever you're discussing something with someone, does it always have this, like, biting edge to it when you're having these conversations, whatever they might be about? Whenever you share the good news of the gospel with people, are people brought closer to God? Are they strengthened in their faith? Are people glad to have met you when you interact with them as it relates to spiritual matters? Now, to help you avoid some confusion this morning, I'm going to summarize Paul's argument overall, because really chapters 8 through 10, Paul's dealing with this same question. We're going to see chapter 9 next week, chapter 10 the week after that, but I want you to see kind of how the flow of 8 through 10 goes so you can see how today chapter 8 fits into the context. So here's the Corinthians question. Can Christians eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? Paul's response number one, if you look at the entire chapters 8 through 10, is this. If the idol food is eaten in the context of idolatrous worship in a pagan temple, then the answer to that question is no. Okay, so you follow that? That covers chapters 8 through 10. And if you look at his second response, which is at the end of chapter 10, his response number two is, if it is bought in the meat market without knowing where it comes from, then yes, you're free to partake in that. Now, um, and then at the very end of chapter 10, his third response makes things more complicated. And here's what he says. If it is eaten in a private home, then yes, unless it will harm the conscience of anyone present, in which case, no. So we're going to spend three weeks on this idea so that you understand where Paul's coming from and why he's saying it this way, laying it out this way for the people in Corinth. Now, the food itself isn't the issue, but it's the character and context of the meal taking place. One writer says it like this, Ben Witherington says it, it's more about the venue than the menu, all right? So that's a, a way to keep it, uh, keep these things separated. 
So look down at verse 4. It says, Therefore, as to the eating of foods offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, all, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul quotes back to them what they have said to him. He says, listen, I understand an idol has no real existence. And so their argument goes like this. Because an idol is just a block of wood or stone, it doesn't really point to any gods because those gods don't really exist in the true sense. And because those gods don't really exist, how can food sacrificed to them become tainted? Seems to make sense, right? But even though idols don't really point to real gods, we know that idolatry is a real thing. There is such a thing as idolatry, the sin of idolatry. We look over in Psalm chapter 115, where the psalmist is describing idolatry and what it does to us. And this is a, a powerful passage. It says, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. So here the psalmist compares Israel's God with the gods of the surrounding nations. And these words seem to agree with those Corinthians who say that, you know, idols don't point to any real God because the idols can't see, hear, or feel, but we still know, and Psalm 115 confirms it, that idolatry is still a real thing. And I, I've heard some say it this way. They summarize this passage with these words. We become what we worship. So that last little phrase in Psalm 115, verse 8, where it says, those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. So as the psalmist is describing these idols, that they have no senses physically. He is saying those who make them, these idols, they become just like them, lacking any spiritual sense, lacking any spiritual sensitivity. So the heart is an idol factory, always attempting to replace God with something else. But if we worship empty things, we're going to become empty. This is why when you start following certain movie stars or athletes or musicians, you ever notice people begin to look like the people they follow, talk like them, act like them, want to become like them? Is it any wonder why people do that? Because we become what we worship. Or for your parents, or maybe for some of you, they, people begin to speak and act like their favorite political candidates sometimes. We become what we worship. This psalm mentions the five senses. If, if, we commit a, if we commit idolatry, we lose our spiritual senses. We cannot see, hear, or feel. So I want to ask you this question. If you're spiritually numb, ask yourself this question. Where are my idols? If you feel like you lack spiritual sensitivity, and you just feel kind of cold and numb to the world, even though you claim Christ, 
Ask yourself the question, where are my idols? In what ways am I becoming like the very things that I worship? So Paul agrees that these idols aren't alive. They're not living, but, but many people once lived in idolatry. And, and for the strong person mentioned in this passage, it'd be a mistake to discount that reality. That for some people, for many people in that day and age, they'd come out of idolatry. And so they're going to struggle if someone says, Harry, eat this piece of idol meat. That'd be a struggle for them. It might take them back to a bad place. And for those that are strong in their conscience, they need to be sensitive to the person that has the weaker conscience. Look at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So we'll explain what this means, and then we're going to get practical. So those with knowledge, these are the strong. These are the ones that might feel superior because of their knowledge. So Paul reminds them, he says, listen, not everyone is like you. You know, some have a weak conscience. And when they eat this food, it, it stirs up their past, and, and they feel like they're committing idolatry again. So you, you may have heard us talk about this before, but if someone, <clears throat> if someone has a past with certain kinds of sins, it may be difficult for that person to go to certain kinds of places. So this past week, I was in Nashville. Uh, we went to a pastor's conference there, um, kind of like a create-your-own-pastor's conference that we did with the staff at TBC. And um, never been there before, and we're walking down Broadway, which is like where all of the um, music things take place in Nashville downtown. Um, grab some dinner, and we're just kind of walking down the street. And, yeah, we would go into some of the, um, the bars and stuff and kind of listen to some live music and whatnot. And so we're doing some of that on Broadway. Now, listen, if somebody that I was with had just come out of alcoholism and they used to go down a place like that a lot and get drunk a lot in their earlier days of, of before they came to Christ, even, even after they became a Christian possibly, then, um, and they're now trying to stay away from that lifestyle I'm not taking that person on that street and in that place because they have a weaker conscience. And they might be led astray and fall back into the same sins again. That's not really part of my background and my testimony. So I might be considered strong in that area, although I might be weak in other areas someone else might be strong in. So you understand that if someone has a certain past, it might be difficult to go to certain kinds of places. And in verse 7, Paul mentions this word, the conscience. This is moral sensitivity. So God has given us a conscience, and, and so we sense conviction about sin, but also helps us navigate the gray areas of our lives. So um, how should Christians handle gray areas in our, in our, in our world today? Now, I'm going to give you four questions that can help you understand how to navigate, I think, most things, because life is complicated. And sometimes things aren't clear-cut. There's always these gray issues we deal with. So things like, questions might be like, you know, what age should I get a phone or a smartphone? What, what kind of school should I go to? Or what age should I, at what age should I start dating? Or if I'm over 21, is it okay to have a drink? Or what about tattoos? Or what about how I dress? All kinds of questions that enter into your minds 
where there's not a verse for it, you say, oh, well, right here it says this. It's not always like that. So here's some questions to ask yourself as you navigate these kind of gray issues in the Christian faith. So if it's against Scripture, then it would be a sin for all people in all time and all places. So listen, everything is not gray. If the Bible says as a command, you know, don't do, fill in the blank, well, then it's, it's God's word. It's God's authority. And we know it's, it violates God's commands. We can't turn sin issues into gray issues. There are some that want to make everything a gray issue. Where God says something is sinful, they were like, no, nah, you know, it's open to interpretation. I mean, it's, it's kind of a gray issue. It's like, no, 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 there are some things that God says. No, this is a, this is a black and white clear-cut issue. And God commands it either to abstain or to go do something. And we can't make that into a gray issue. We can also add to this things like obeying the law, Romans 13, and many other passages as well. Obeying your parents. God's placed them as authority over your lives. So you need to obey those institutions, law and your parents. That falls under, does it violate God's commands? Secondly, does it violate my conscience? There are some people who they want a clear-cut rule for everything. And if there's not a Bible verse about it, then they think they're just free to do whatever. But listen, some things should violate your conscience. If nothing ever stirs your conscience, then be afraid. We should be very afraid because you might be a sociopath if you have no conscience, right? It's possible for something to be morally neutral, but for it still to be a violation of a person's conscience. You know, Paul mentions this over in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, where he says, if we cannot do something with a clear conscience, then for us, Paul says, it is sinful. If you can't do something with a clear conscience, then for you, it would be sinful to do that. If, even if it's a neutral thing, it'd be a sin, sin for you to do it if you can't do it with a clear conscience. God gives us a conscience for good reason. So I mentioned, uh, you know, drinking earlier. Now, full, full stop, we'd say underage drinking, I would say, is sinful because it's the law of the land, right? Um, being drunk, God says, is, being, is sinful. But apart from that, um, I would say you can't find Scripture to say that drinking in and of itself is sinful if it's not being done underage or you're, someone's not getting drunk. So for some, though, it's a violation of conscience. Maybe due to alcoholism in their family or for my mom, it's a violation of her conscience because her brother was killed by a drunk driver. So she has never partaken in alcohol. And I understand that. It'd be wrong to judge someone if they choose not to partake, but also wrong for that person to judge somebody with a different view on a gray issue like that. So we don't violate our conscience, but it's also wrong to turn issues of conscience into a list of commands. So that's the second question. The third question is, does it exploit a personal weakness? Now, I, I admit I'm not taking this question from the passage today, but it's just a good, a good, wise question for us to ask. Because if having certain things or being in certain places causes you to sin, then you need to rethink it. Those are wisdom issues. If having a certain kind of phone causes you to sin, or watching your TV or computer with nobody else around causes you to stumble in what, in what you watch and fall, and fall into sin, sin and temptation, so by themselves, those are morally neutral activities, but if you're falling into sin, it's just not wise. It's a wisdom issue. 
There are so many Christians that ask, you know, can I fill in the blank? When they should be asking, should I fill in the blank? You know, you, you might be free in Christ to do something, but it'd still be unwise for us to do it. So look down at verse 9 through 13 for our last and final question. Paul says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Meaning, eat meat that's been offered to idols, is what he's referring to. So Paul is saying that we must not exercise our rights in such a way as to destroy our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. So it might work like this. Imagine that one of the weak people, they see another believer lounging around some pagan, pagan temple dining room, enjoying a sacrificial piece of meat in the context of idol worship. That person, the weak person, might conclude that they should eat idol food as well, and it might lead them to believe idolatry is compatible with Christianity. That's where somebody might go with that. They might believe that they can follow Jesus and continue to serve pagan gods. So in doing this, the stronger has destroyed the weaker believer's faith. So the last and final question, what do the people around me need from me? Is that ever a question that you ask yourself before you do something? It is a sin to violate our own conscience, but it's also a sin to cause someone else to violate their conscience. Whenever we cause someone to violate their conscience, it, it's going to wound their conscience. It sears their conscience, makes them unable to see right from wrong. You're going to inhibit that person from developing their own conscience and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's leading. Look back again at verse 12. It's a powerful idea. Thus, sinning against your brothers and, and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Sinning, sinning against the body is a sin against Christ. So how do we know that a church is healthy when people can differ on issues of conscience but still be together and, and still love one another and respect one another? You know, we often blame the other person if someone takes what we do in a bad direction. And I think sadly in the church, we've begun to replace Christian freedom with this thing called American freedom. Like American freedom says, I've got a right to do fill in the blank and don't deny my rights. That's how we talk in our world today. Listen, that's not Christian freedom. Christian freedom looks like this. We are free to lay down our rights so we can love others well. Christian freedom says we are free in Christ, but we're also free to set aside that freedom for the sake of someone else. We are free to love one another sacrificially. And where do we see the greatest example of what I'm describing? Over in Philippians chapter 2, we see Christ described by Paul, Christ coming to us in the flesh and laying aside his rights to dwell among us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the example of sacrificially laying down someone's rights and entering someone else's world in a loving way. Jesus did that for us, and we can do the same for others. You guys are going to go to your breakouts, and so if you don't know where to go, come and see me.